Good morning, Earthlings. <laughs> I'm glad you're here today. Thanks for showing up. And uh, I think Dar already announced it, but in case you got here late or something, uh, we are offering these for free. They're KN95 uh, masks. They're an upgrade to the normal uh, mask that you would be wearing. You know, think about the time that we are living in and where we've been over two years with COVID. And, you know, when they first started talking about masks, kind of the question was, are masks going to protect us from stuff coming in? And at that time, um, you know, everybody was saying the only kind of mask that's going to protect you is like an N95 kind of a thing. And those other masks that we wear, even surgical masks, are basically worthless. So I remember at that time, people were making handmade masks that were more that lower grade, I mean, by the hundreds. And some crosswalkers were doing that. And I remember them bringing them in. And I'm like, well, but is that going to help at all? Because part of the messaging was those are gonna, are going to help, but then they realized, wait a minute, uh, it actually is going to help because it keeps your germs from going very far out of your body, and also protects us from your bad breath and a number of other things, and you know all that. And so we're like, all right, hooray, masks. So masks are a very good thing. And then now with Omicron, we realize uh, that those aren't enough, and so we want you to be protected and safe. And these are are good, and they're going to protect you as, as best as you can. So we hope you'll upgrade today uh, if you don't already have one. Um, and you want to change those out about every week or so. So anyway, very glad that Dar is back with us and turn the corner on that. Let's just uh, say a thank you, God, for that. And before I head into teaching, just want to spend a moment or two just talking about where we are and being uh, honest with ourselves about how we're feeling. Uh, we live in tense times. Um, we're two years in, you know, to COVID, and it's heavy. And I was having a conversation uh, just recently with a friend and talking about um, the frustration of polarities. And we have a polarity in our country, uh, largely down uh, political lines, political party lines, where on one side, if you're talking too much about mask wearing and being careful, then you're living in fear. And we shouldn't be living in fear. And on the other side, you have folks that, you know, are not wearing masks, not doing social distancing, not doing anything. And the other side is looking at them and saying, you're living in denial. And it feels like these are the only two options that we have. And it's incredibly tense and stressful. The, the COVID alone <laughs> is stressful. And then we've added gasoline on it uh, with our polarities and our binary thinking and our culture, which has just been exacerbated in the last 20, 30 years. It's awful, and it should feel awful. Uh, my friend was telling me that uh, her own child, you know, uh, was just traumatized uh, by the idea of COVID and fear of if I get this, you know, I'm going to die, you know, because that's kind of what's in the air. And Lynn and I were talking about this, and it reminded us of 9-11. Uh, I was at a conference and had Lynn and both kids with me, and they were in the hotel room. And I remember waking up before I went down for my first meeting, and we saw it all unfold uh, right on TV. And my son Noah uh, was old enough to remember it, and he's watching this happen. And of course, we're all in shock. And as you remember, um, the airways, uh, not the waves, but the airspace was quiet for like a week or I don't know how long, but a long time. And so there were no planes in the air. And then all of a sudden, when the first plane uh, started going back into the skies and my son heard it, he immediately came running to Lynn and I and wondered, is that plane going to crash into our house? Because that's what his world was. And so we know, and we can rest assured, uh, that COVID is, is taking a toll on our kids and the stress in the air is there. And so we want to be respectful. And so what do we do as Jesus people in that? What do we do at just dealing with it? And I think, I think it respects both. <laughs> we don't live in fear, but we do live with wisdom and prudence. And we live with respect for other people. Uh, Jesus told us there are two rules. If you follow these two rules, these two guides, you're going to be all right. Love God, meaning love this greater other and all that that means in all of its depth, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so that forces us in a very loving way to be gracious and loving uh, toward the people around us. 
And so we need to respect that uh, with each other. And I hope that, hope that you're hearing me uh, well uh, with that because it's heavy and we need more love. There's a hole in the world tonight and tomorrow, and we have the capacity to do something about that with our love and our grace. I said uh, good morning, earthlings, to you uh, when I came up, partly just because why not, <laughs> but also because I just want to point that out. That's what you are. You are an earthling. You are a child of this earth. Uh, when uh, astronauts go and they're floating miles above uh, the earth's surface and looking down on this blue rock, um, they're astonished by how beautiful it is, but they cannot see your face. You're part of earth. We are not removed from it. Every single person who has ever lived before us on this planet, their dust from which they were made is still here. This is not just our home in which we rest to a degree. We'll talk about heaven in a bit. But this is our final resting place as well as the place of our origins. Uh, the Bible is pretty good in its poetry saying, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, because it's true. This is where we are. It's a healthy thing to be grounded in this way, uh, to realize we're a part of this rock floating around. We really are a part of this rock. Uh, this past Monday, um, Lakin had uh, the day off uh, for MLK Memorial, and so uh, we decided to take a trip to Armstrong Woods. And beautiful. Uh, it's a great place. Uh, love it. And it's like a smaller, less busy mere woods. We're walking around, and as you know, uh, it got um, ravaged a little bit by fires a couple of years ago. And the evidence of the charred bark was unmistakable. Uh, new guardrails here and there where the old ones burned down. You could tell where there wasn't much brush on the floor because it had been burned two years ago. But what was amazing is how resilient the redwoods are, that they're actually made for this. They actually need the burn now and then. And the more we understand about trees, especially in forests and how they work, we're, we're learning that they actually communicate with each other in a subterranean level in profound ways, knowing when one is diseased or sick and offering uh, whatever nutrients it has to that. When one is dying and knows it, it sort of offers it in another way to those that are alive. It's unbelievable uh, what our creation in this planet knows to do by design. If you've ever studied fish, I've went to Alaska a few years ago, and we went to a salmon fishery, and we're learning all about salmon, and we're talking to the, you know, people who study such things, you know, at great depth, and we're asking the question, how in the world do these salmon who start in one creek, one little spot somewhere, go out into the ocean for most of their lives, and they come back to the exact same area where it's spotting out? How does that happen? And their answer was, I don't know. <laughs> They've got some hunches. Maybe it's a scent in the water that they're tracing. It's, they don't really know. How do birds know how to uh, go to one place in, in the south uh, when it's cold here and then return to the same area again and again? How do butterflies know how to do the same things? Most of creation is designed in such a way that all this stuff is just happening because that's how they were designed. But you and I, fellow earthlings, we're a little bit unique uh, in a very particular way where we have the choice to determine how in the flow of this thing are we going to be, how in touch with this creation spirit, this creator, are we going to be? Are we going to follow the path of the salmon and the trees and the birds and the butterflies who just naturally they don't have any other choice, uh, just kind of ebb and flow uh, with the spirit of life that is all around us, or are we going to fight it in different ways and cause problems for ourselves and others? I invite you this morning to take deep breath, make a conscious decision to be connected to this greater other that we call God, which is hardly adequate but it's one of the words we've got, the spirit of creativity, 
the spirit of love, of joy, of peace, of all that is good in the world, of life itself, eternal, to tie into that, to welcome that, to ground ourselves in this ground of being, of love. To help you kind of get there, I've got a a video that I want to share with you on Psalm 121. Enjoy. pray together. So God, as we breathe deeply, we can let our guard down in this space. We can let our shoulders rest. The muscles in our face relax. We can choose to be fully present now in this space together. We are here in community, both in this physical space and on Zoom and on YouTube, and we are together, bound by your love, bound by your creativity, your breath, which gives us each life, your love which sustains us and holds us and gives us hope and joy. As we venture in to subjects of depth that poke at our foundations and make us wonder, what do we really believe? May we continue to be relaxed and open. That you might have the ability to speak to us because we've chosen to let our guard down even to your spirit. We've chosen to say to you, we welcome you. Help us know you more, more deeply. That we might be more connected to this greater other called God, the source of love and life and hope, the one that made Jesus all that Jesus was and and the Christness of Jesus Christ. May we ourselves today experience such anointing that we would be changed, filled with hope, and better able to be conduits of your love. I this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we are. We're in week four of five of this uh, series on open and relational theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, we were going to have uh, Tom Ord, the author of book by the same name, uh, join us in person. But we decided a couple of weeks ago that was just a dumb idea uh, for lots of reasons to travel. Uh, so he's going to I actually uh, had an interview with him this past week and about the subjects that are going to help tie this thing up, uh, which uh, we're going to showcase next week. And then at the very end of uh, that teaching, he's actually going to be live on Zoom, and we figured out a way to make it all work uh, so that you can ask questions of him related to the series or even just slightly not related to the series. Don't ask him about Super Bowl predictions. He's from Idaho. He doesn't know about football, can't understand football. But we're happy about the Niners, are we? i got to say that. I mean, wham, what a game. And we're all praying for the Kansas City Chiefs, aren't we? Yes, yes. 
No. Okay. Well, <laughs> consider it, please consider it. Uh, anyhow, um, so he'll be here live on Zoom, uh, and he's just the coolest guy. And I just I love this guy. Uh, he is brilliant. Uh, he speaks liter literally around the world. Uh, he has written dozens of books and articles, uh, and yet he is the most down-to-earth uh, guy. Uh, like myself, uh, he is a lover of creation and loves to be out in it, and uh, he's a photographer as well and has just incredible photography. Uh, you're going to see his backdrop uh, on the Zoom interview, and it's of wild horses uh, in Idaho uh, running a, a whole, what do you call them? A, what, a herd, thank you, not a flock. That's, that's a different thing. <laughs> a herd of horses. <laughs> but you see them galloping across this uh, snowy meadow with the sawtooth mountains in the background. I mean, just he really makes some great shots. So anyway, I think he's an amazing guy and just thrilled that he's going to join us next week. So uh, to that end, if you have any questions uh, that you're thinking about, that you might be afraid to ask for whatever reason. Uh, there are little comment cards on your table, and I encourage you just to jot as many as you can down. I'm going to be the one, you know, feeding him the questions uh, next week. Uh, and if you don't come up with anything, I'm going to make stuff up. Uh, but I'd much rather get stuff that you're wondering about and and play hardball. Uh, this guy can handle it. Uh, he plays hardball on the highest level of theological uh, discourse. So uh, bring it, and I really welcome. All of, all of it that you have. But just as a review, we started talking about the openness of God, uh, that uh, if, if we really believe uh, that God is with us uh, and that God truly is loving uh, and gives us free will, if we really believe that free will piece, uh, that means that God uh, is not already in the future. Uh, because if God was already in the future, God would know what the future would hold for us with specificity. And if God knows with specificity what is going to happen in our distant or even immediate future with absolute 100% certainty because he's already seen it, that means essentially we don't have free will. Now, what you may find is, is that there are proof texts in the Bible that want to support the idea that God is already there. And I would say that that is correct. But... There are also plenty of verses that proof text the opposite and other things in between. I'll talk more about that in a minute. The next week, we got into the relational aspect of God, that God is really, really, really with us, uh, very present with us, which we'll unpack at greater depths today. And so much so, like, like the cable exercise I had or that fish line exercise that I had with you, that God, more than any other uh, creature, to use a better, lack of a better term, uh, on the planet feels us because he feels us very deeply because he's that present with us, that relational with us, and feels it all the time from all people. So God is aware of the pain of everything happening in the universe and the joys and everything in between more than any other creature. God feels what we feel. And that is itself, it may not sound like a very provocative statement, but when we say that God feels that means that we are having an impact. We are affecting God. This may not be impressive to you, but in theological terms, in the theological world, it's very significant because one of the bedrock principles of God in, uh, in conventional theology is that God is unchanging. God is unchangeable. And yet if God is affected by us in some way, that means God has been changed. You see what I'm saying? So this theological framework says that God is open and God is relational, which means God is in the ebb and flow. He's really with us in it every step of the moment and is, is really in the same step of time as everybody else. He's not ahead of us. He's with us every step of the way. And last week we talked about evil and suffering and tried to give you a new framework on that, uh, that if God is truly loving and I really believe that's the, that's the bottom line, which Tom Ord will unpack at great depths uh, next week. And he has a book called The Uncontrolling Love, if you want to go even deeper than he could possibly do on a teaching. I highly recommend it. It's very academic, but very good. Uh, if we really believe that God is loving at the core and God really does give us free will, that means everybody has free will. And that means that God in God's love for us, giving God's people free will, that means God has to honor that free will across the board for those who have it. 
That means Brian can ruin my day <laughs> if, if Brian wants to. Uh, that means Danny can make my day uh, if she really wants to because she and he have free will that are not just going to affect their lives but affect everybody's lives around them. This means evil and suffering can happen as we people of free will can give in, not to the good, loving nudge of God that is always calling us forward with the very best choices that are going to not only bless us, but everybody else, but we can give in to much lesser angels, so to speak, much lesser forces that are more egocentric, selfish, greedy, whatever, that is not thinking about anybody else and really cannot think fully about ourselves as well. And when we do those things, we bring harm to our lives and other people. Sometimes that happens on a massive scale, like a national scale. And we see entire people groups, entire nations, entire races doing horrible, horrible, horrible things to other nations, other peoples, other races. And sometimes... It's backed up by bad theology. I'm going to kick out an article to you in a couple of weeks uh, as we get into February that gives you a, a, a more scholarly look at the history of slavery worldwide because it was obviously a phenomenon really up until recent, very recent times. Uh, but it will also help give us a different perspective on what was unique about American slavery because we did some things with it. He brings up nine points, this author, about how we did different things with it and is why it is still, um, we are still dealing with the ramifications of it in our country, perhaps at greater levels than other countries who also had slavery, even from Africa. It's fascinating stuff, but it's an example of what do you do when, when a group of people collectively in their free will do terrible things and then do another terrible thing, back it up with bad theology, which suggests that they have the right answer and the endorsement of God to carry on. Heavy-duty stuff. When we get this framework in mind, we understand, at least it's helpful for me, that I don't blame God for the bad things that happen in the world. doesn't even occur to me because I know that first... In the wildness of creation, it's the wildness of creation. So natural disasters are going to happen. There's going to be a volcano on occasion that, that blows from two miles beneath the surface. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's going to happen. Hurricanes, tornadoes, hurricane force winds here Friday and Saturday. Crazy, right? That's going to happen. And I know that people are wild as well in their free will and can do things that are going to cause great harm. That compels me, by the way, to want to be better, to want to think more about what does it mean for me to walk in the spirit of God like Jesus did, which is going to bring beauty, salvation, wholeness, well-being, peace, wherever I go, as much as possible. That, to me, is very compelling. But today, we're going to talk about the presentness of God, the presentness of God. And on the next slide, uh, this is kind of where we're going to go, and it looks like a lot because it is, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on every point. But let me start with, with this. I don't know how long ago it was, uh, maybe 10 years or more ago, and I was talking something about creation and being good stewards of the planet and so on and so forth. And a crosswalker uh, was here sitting with a person who was visiting our church, uh, who that crosswalker knew um, from previous years. Uh, from a more conventional theological perspective. And as I'm talking about creation care and how we need to be good stewards of the planet Earth, uh, the guy kind of giggled and, you know, nudged her a little bit and said, not like it matters anyway, this whole place is going to burn down as soon as Jesus comes back. That was kind of the idea. Crosswalker, uh, very recently, uh, who I very much respect after last week's uh, talk, uh, we were having a conversation, and she told me about an interview uh, that she heard from Rick Warren. And uh, Rick Warren had said in this interview in relation to what do we think about COVID? And he said, well, you know, and Rick Warren, if you don't know, uh, just retired as a megachurch pastor in Southern California who had a global voice, uh, was a Johnny-come-lately uh, to the issues of the poor. But once he got it, he was a champion of God's heart for the poor and helped get great things going. And purpose-driven church is sort of his thing. And anyway, in this interview, uh, in response to all things COVID, he said, well, we have to remember that we're in God's waiting room right now. 
Now, there's a part of that that's beautiful that we'll talk about in a moment. The beautiful part of that is, is we have hope that beyond this flesh and blood, there is more. We're not just dirt clods. There is the Spirit of God at work in our lives that gives us life and breath, and that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And we believe that that Spirit of God is eternal, doesn't end, and that we will be invited into that someday, that part of us that is also eternal. The flesh and blood is not the end. That's why when a beautiful person like Mary Walters, whose sister's here today, uh, passes away, um, we grieve her loss and how quickly things happened for her. But we are so grateful that there is more than this flesh and blood. So I want to talk about these two things, the comment on, well, it's all going to burn anyway, and, well, we're just in heaven's waiting room as we go. I want to say again that all theology is man-made. And I'm actually very specific. I know what it means to be gender inclusive, but I'm telling you that the overwhelming amount of theology that we have today is man-made. <laughs> it's written by men. <laughs> There's only a little bit uh, that's written by women, and, and more and more, which is wonderful. But most of it's man-made. The Bible is filled with theology. So you can find different theological perspectives throughout the Bible, and they don't always agree with each other. And while that can be really annoying, it's actually a wonderful gift if we can see it for what it is. It's only annoying because we've had this idea in our head that everything in the Bible is exactly what God meant, and it's exactly right, and it has to be right, and it cannot be wrong. That's inerrancy and infallibility. And the problem with that is, first of all, Jesus never would have signed off on such a thing. Neither would have Paul or any of the Jewish rabbis, for that matter. So it's a real departure from what antiquity, uh, the voices from antiquity thought. But it also means that we can't really wrestle with Scripture. But if we back off from that statement, we recognize that the Bible is filled with theologies that are written by men, then we can wrestle with it. Then it becomes alive. It does not lose its power or its, its importance. It's still our core documents, but we can treat it differently. We can come around the table and see their context and appreciate it and understand how they came up with what they did. This uh, challenge and this tension of theological perspective even shows up in the earliest passage in the Bible, which is from one of two or three uh, different theological camps that gave us the book of Genesis. This is just the first two lines in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. Uh, this is a picture of chaos, by the way, in antiquity. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. Now, the interesting thing about Genesis as we have a couple different creation stories from different theological voices, the first one shows up in chapter one, and then two and three uh, shows up uh, from a different theological voice describing things differently. But we see a tension theologically about the presence of God right here in the first few verses. The first thing that we see is that you have creation and you have God related, a little bit separate, because that would fit the mind of yesteryear, where God is up there. Uh, when God continues to create, uh, we see every step of the way uh, God calls it good. Uh, there's at one point where God creates, uh, in like King James versions of the Bible, the firmament. And Lauren, if Lauren Haas is watching this on Zoom or on YouTube right now, he'll be clapping his hands, probably doing a happy dance, and his dogs are going crazy. What is Lauren doing? Because the firmament in antiquity meant a steel dome. That's what they thought. We, we literally have drawings <laughs> back from antiquity that show how they understood creation. And when God created the firmament, firmament it was literally a steel dome that covered a flat earth, almost like, you know, a platter, you know, whatever that thing is on top that covers up your food on a platter, you know, that's the idea. And then what is it? 
Whatever. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's even more difficult to hear with a mask. I heard, <laughs> right. So, but you do know what you're talking about, Danny. So anyway, um, and the idea was, is that when, uh, when rain needed to come in its season, God would open up a hatch and the rain would fall on the earth. And if people were naughty, God would open it up uh, or God would keep it closed uh, to teach us a lesson. That was kind of the idea. And if we were really, 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 really naughty, God would keep the hatch open and water would just keep pouring down so much so that the whole earth was flooded with water. This was the idea of creation and it fit the primitive mind. God is up there controlling everything. We're down here. We are separated from God by the firmament. So when we pray to Heavenly Father or God up there, we actually literally mean it. God is up there somewhere not down here. However, the creation story itself <laughs> shows the tension because what is bringing creation into order? What is bringing creation into life? The very breath of God. When you hear God speak, it is the breath of God that is bringing everything into life. In other words, nothing in creation exists except because of the ever-present presence of God. So while in our brains we see the sun cross the earth and the moon later on every night, our brains tell us God is up there. And yet somewhere intuitively, even back then, there was this belief that God is not really just up there, but is also here. And we see this tension throughout the scriptures, a tension of what our brains and our man-made theology has come up with about the distance of God and the reality of the experience of God being very, very present. Well, this led to some interesting things about separation. So where do we even come up with this? Well, fast forward a very long time. Um, from the time Genesis actually came uh, onto, uh, into print uh, till Paul wrote about sin and separation, uh, we're talking about uh, 800, 900 years, somewhere in that ballpark. And Paul, who is writing to a Roman church, a church in Rome, he's talking to Jewish Christians. And the Jewish Christians are not being very nice to non-Jewish Christians. The book of Romans is focused on helping the Jewish Christians be nice <laughs> to non-Jewish Christians. That's the whole background. And so to help them understand that they're really more the same than different, Paul does a very rabbinical thing. He co-ops what happens in Genesis uh, 2 and 3, talking about Adam and Eve. And he's, he introduced the idea of the fall of man. This was Paul, and it was original to him because he wanted to make it clear that everybody is in the same boat. And so he created an idea within uh, his book of Romans uh, called, we actually call it the Roman road in the evangelical world. And it's a tool of, of evangelism that's used even to this day, usually in tracts and little pictographs. And it goes like this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Two, the wages of sin is death. You're going to die, people, because of your sin. Three, at the time of our suffering, at the time while we were still sinning, Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sins. That's point three. So that, number four, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it made it a very nice, easy-to-picture idea. And there's usually a little picture where you realize that there's this separation. Our sin creates this separation from God. And it's a chasm that's too big to cross. We can't jump over it. We can't figure out how to bridge it. And so the way the pictograph works is the cross becomes this bridge that now we can walk over, and the separation is no longer there. The problem with that is that while that is very understandable from the mindset in that day and age, not only does it not jibe completely with the rest of the Bible, but it doesn't even jibe with Paul, who understands that the separation isn't quite what he meant it to be. And if I, I think if he could be here with us today, he would say, wait, 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 you, you kind of got me out of context here. Let's talk more fully about where God is. 
Because if we really understand that story that I was co-opting to make a point for stubborn-minded Jewish Christians so they would actually act like Jesus toward their Gentile brothers and sisters, if we understood that, we'd understand that actually uh, Jesus, God, the whole thing is one of inclusion, not separation. And that the Genesis story itself in the rabbinical mind is one where God does not abandon, does not separate, but comes alongside even in the worst of their shame and pain and converses with them and gives them life and hope. It's a very different picture. Now, if you're like me, you remember times in your life uh, when you felt separated from God. Anybody ever felt separated from God? I'm the only one. Well, that's terrific. Of course. And for some of us, the Roman road was that thing that helped us not be separated anymore because it sort of gave us a schema. It gave us a construct to help us understand what was happening in us. But the reality is, my friends, that God never left you. It's actually impossible for God to leave us. It's not possible for God to be separate from us. The question is then, if we feel a separation, who moved? And I can tell you this from <laughs> all 51 and a half years of my experience, that I'm the one that moves. That when I uh, sense the nudge, the loving nudge of God toward the best, wholeness, salvation, all of those wonderful qualities that uh, that try to give example and breath to the person of God, when I choose to say no to that and choose mediocre or at times really horrible options, it's like I put a break in the relationship. And it's like I say, yeah, thanks for the advice, but this sure feels good to me. And so I'm going to go this direction. And a lot of times the worst of those decisions are rooted in my own egocentrism, my own desire for control and power. And that's, that's where they take me. And it sometimes takes a while for those decisions to catch up with me and the consequences to come home to roost, but they eventually always do. And it's at that point that I feel the separation. I feel like God is distant from me when in fact I have created a barrier. I have created a hard crust over my mind, my heart, my being that has made it an unwelcome uh, made God feel unwelcome in my life. But when I remember through friends, through circumstances, through the Bible itself, that God is with me, that God is loving, and I open myself back up to that, what do I discover? I discover that God has been there all along, that God is not there to punch me in the nose or kick me in the gut, but actually to tend to my wounds and actually to give me strength to move forward. God doesn't immediately erase all the consequences, but God makes it clear. And this has happened every single time in my life. And I, and I believe this is the way it is. It's not just me. This is for everybody. And I bet you could give testimony to this. That at every single time, not only does, does that happen, but God is like, you and I are okay. I know you got to suffer some consequences of some decisions that have caught up with you. And that's just what it is. But we're all right. I love you. Let's move forward. I think that's what Paul would want to say because that was Paul's experience. Paul's experience was a God who was incredibly present to him. Remember how Paul got converted? Literally going out to hunt down Christians <laughs> and bring them back to trial where he would hope they at least got flogged if not killed. You can't be more uh, in contradistinction to the Spirit of God at that moment. And at that moment... He finally wakes up to the bright light of God and decides, I was wrong. And it took a long period of time for him to shape it up and get it going, but he did, and he could, he could, you could not shut him up about it. Now, what did happen with him, as will get us to creation care stuff, is that Paul lived in the first century as a Jewish man, as did Jesus, as did all the disciples. And as a first century Jewish person, they had apocalyptic fever. Uh, they were hoping that a newfangled Messiah that was militaristic and nationalistic would come and rule, kick Rome's butt, 
so that they could be on top and they could have peace. They were so tired of Roman occupation and other occupations for as long as anybody could remember, I mean centuries, uh, that they just they were sick of it. When, God, are you going to do it again? So their idea had this weird tension of this is how God is going to come and save the day. It's going to be a new leader. It's going to be military, going to kick butt, and we're going to be on top. We're going to be the world's superpower forevermore. That's the big hope. Well, we took that to the nth degree. John, who was at uh, least credited with the book of Revelation, uh, while he's on a penal colony called Potmos, has this inspired vision of what we call the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was actually a code letter uh, to go out to the churches. Now, I, I'm going to say this out loud, and you can look this up and Google it on your own. I'm, I am in the preterist camp, which means that when I read the book of Revelation, I think because of the research I've done, and more importantly, the research that researchers have done that I think makes a lot of sense, I think most of the things that we see in the book of Revelation have already happened because Jesus, or Paul, or I'll get one of these right, John, <laughs> writing this letter, <laughs> was writing to people who understood their own history with Rome. And so there are code words for characters that everybody in antiquity would have immediately understood. We get all sci-fi about the mark of the beast and dragons and this kind of thing, when actually the people in the first century would immediately know, oh, I know he's who he's talking about. I, I know what that means. I know what the sign of the beast refers to in Ephesus at that time. The whole thing read very, very differently. But we in the Western mind, and about 1,500 years after John wrote this letter, uh, we adopted the idea that the Bible is fixed, it's accurate, exactly uh, what it's going to be. And so we adopted that same apocalyptic fever to assume that that is what was God was going to do in the world, which included that God literally was going to create a new heaven, a new earth. So who gives a hell about this one? Really? That's where it comes from. And that creates problems now. Because bad theology or errant theology gives way to some pretty tough choices. And so the guy who makes the comment about, well, who cares about planet Earth if it's all going to burn up anyway? And by the way, apocalyptic fever, if you're a good Christian, <laughs> according to conventional theology, Jesus is going to come back Thursday. Any day now, any moment, any second, it could happen before I finish the next sentence, <laughs> right? And so it's not very compelling to take care of a planet if you're very confident, certain in fact, that it's all going to get toasted anyhow. And a new, better version is going to come. In fact, you can go even further. You can take a look at this whole thing. And, you know, Martin Luther, hundreds of years ago, said, looked at humanity and said, humanity is totally depraved. There is nothing good about human beings whatsoever. And creation is just like it. We are living in a cesspool, people. That's just the way it is. We can't wait to get out of this old earth and get that new one someday. When that's the attitude, who gives a flip about the earth? Except voices in the Bible. Except the very poem of creation that says every step of the way, the very present God, whose very presence is within the creation itself, is saying, this is good. This is good. This is good. My presence, says God, is in this because I breathed it. My energy that forms everything is in it, and it is therefore good. And when he saw human beings who Martin Luther would say are totally depraved and absolutely worthless, <laughs> it's like this is, this is the apple of God's eye. The crowning achievement, the end of creation, looks at creation, creates people in God's own image, and says, that's not good. Now that's very good. And then when he talks to Adam in the garden before they ate the wrong fruit, he says, okay, your job is to look over all this stuff. You're to be a good steward of everything. And even after the so-called fall, when they've been kicked out of the nest, they're grown-ups now, and they know they actually got to work for a living, and childbirth is going to be a real treat, and all these different things, God continues to say, you're going to make it. It's going to be hard work. 
Later on in the Bible, these crazy ideas about letting the land lie fallow every seven years. That's nuts. We're going to lose the profit from that property. Every seven years, you're crazy. But the Bible's voice is speaking. Balance, stewardship, respect of animals, of land, of each other, all the way through. Do you see the incongruency between this idea of the earth is hell-bound, it's going to fry one day, and who, who cares? And we shouldn't even bother with it anymore. Let's ravage the thing because it's all going to hell in the, anyway with what the actual Bible is saying about being a good steward. This is rooted in the very presence of God. If we believe that God is not up there beyond some firmament, but that God is actually with us right here in a very real way, then it is impossible then for us, if we really believe it, to abuse the very earth of which we are a part. It's bad faith, bad religion. And to take that to the next step, if we believe that we can look in the eye at other very good children of God in the world and say, I can treat you like a master. I can say that I am supreme over you. I am better than you, and so is my race. Can you see how that is an absolute contrast to that first Genesis story? If God is present, really present, then that means we treat everybody and everything with inherent dignity and respect. No exceptions. Rick Warren's waiting room comment. I do like the hopeful part of it. Honestly, I think about my parents. I think about my mom, uh, who uh, both of them, you know, when they've had some health scares, you know, they're people who walk deeply in faith and very confident, you know, that heaven awaits them. And I'm confident too that heaven awaits them. And my mom's attitude, she's much more vocal about it. My mom's ready to go. <laughs> you know, I, we don't want that. We're saying, well, no need to rush this, mom. But, but she is at, she's at a place of confident peace. And I think about some of my other uh, friends who are older, and you know, a lot of their life is behind them, and they're, they're truly, genuinely looking forward to taking uh, their last breath on this on this plane and their next breath, so to speak, in the next. And they have this wonderful hope. I think that part is wonderful, and I think it's valid. I think there's something more. We, we do our best to capture it in language, and I think it fails. But I think there's more, and I don't think we'll be disappointed. But here's the problem with the waiting room. The only thing you do in the waiting room is wait. The waiting room sucks. <laughs> it's always outdated magazines. It's people you don't know. You're not even going to bother really having any relationship with anybody in the waiting room. The, the furniture's never comfortable. Uh, the TV doesn't come to the channel that you want. The waiting room is not a place that you want to be, and you do nothing in the waiting room but wait. And so I would want to push back on Rick Warren, and I would say, this life, <laughs> this life, according to the Bible, actually matters. We're not in the waiting room. Uh, we may be awaiting a better future, but we actually have something to do right now. And actually, Jesus gave us pretty clear statements on this. You're to go into the world, spread the good news that I've been talking about and modeling. Help everybody understand this because it's going to make everything better for everyone if you really take it seriously. And what did Jesus have to say about that? Oh, by the way, conventional theology, isms are allowed. Oh, man, think of all the worst isms. They're allowed by conventional theology because somebody somewhere has said that it's okay to treat women like property. It's okay to treat Africans like subhumans. And the list goes on and on and on. But a panentheistic theology, which believes that God is actually in everything and everything is in God, which is different than pantheism. Pantheism says everything is God. Panentheism, uh, God in everything, means that wherever we look, wherever we walk, we are always in the presence of God because it is God who breathes life into everything. If that really is true, then we can no longer treat everything uh, with such indignity. Jesus, on his temptation trip right after his baptism, he had this experience, by the way, which totally fit an early mindset, the Holy Spirit coming down onto him, right? Anointing him. Remember that story? Do you remember, do you remember the bird? What kind of bird it was that descended on him from heaven, so to speak? What was it? 
yes, it was an eagle. It was a warring eagle. That's what it was. It was a symbol of war. No, it was a symbol of peace. It was a dove, a wimpy dove. Let that speak volumes. Even from the very beginning, it was a dove. He has this experience, blows his mind. He goes on a camping trip for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, and he's, has these temptations. And what are these temptations? They all fall along the lines that you and I deal with temptation. Turn the stone into bread. The question, are you going to live your life by your passions, by your gut? Is that, is that what's going to be the, the true north of your life? Just whatever feels right in the moment because you think it must be right if I'm feeling it. Is that it? Now throw yourself off this pinnacle and command God uh, to send angels to catch you. The question, who's going to play God? Are you going to tell God what God is supposed to do? Because that's what that's really about. That you are above God at this moment and you're controlling uh, the world. Is that what your true north is going to be? And the final one, I may be getting these last two uh, reversed, is bow down before me and I will give you all the nations of the world. Is that what it's all about? Western Americans, is your material possessions and your wealth becoming more and more powerful for your own sake? Is that what this whole thing is about? And to each thing that was put before Jesus in this scene, Jesus says, I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to choose the path of God. Uh, when Jesus is talking to a, uh, a, a non-Jewish person, a Samaritan, who was a hated class, uh, in between where he lived in the north and Jerusalem and the south. He had to go through Samaria, and he meets this woman who is, has a bad track record. Uh, she's, she's kind of moaned through multiple husbands. She's not very well respected. She knows it. She's at the well at the wrong time of day. Uh, Jesus does something bold. He strikes a conversation with her, which he's not supposed to do. Why does Jesus do that instead of keeping his distance? Because Jesus sees God in her. Jesus doesn't recognize the separation. And so he breaks code and he starts a conversation with her. And at the end of the conversation, he says to her, you know, true worshipers, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. And when he's saying that, he's saying, whatever place you think the temple should be and whatever place Jewish people think it should be in Jerusalem, that's not the point. And he's kind of going with that statement to say, it's not your religiosity. It's not your firmness of belief in your religious tradition. Are you worshiping in spirit and in truth? Because God is spirit. This is what Jesus is saying. The spirit has no bounds, not up there, but here right now. Jesus said later on uh, to his disciples, wherever two or more of you are gathered, there I am. He even said, I will be with you always. This is after his resurrection, after he gives the, the game plan, go into all the world, make disciples, make, you know, teach them what I'm all about, help them understand this life-giving reality. And lo, I will be with you always. Well, how is that possible? It's only possible if God has always been there already. The Spirit of God present, working within us. The Spirit will be a guide with us, uh, Jesus said, to give you the word when you need to know what it is. He'll give you strength. He'll give you the words when you're before people that you know you shouldn't be talking to. God will be the one giving you instruction. God will be the true north, the nudge to help you through. All of this helps us get uh, to a bunch of questions which you can read on your own, and all these are in my blog. That if, panthen if panentheism, all is in God, if God is present in this way, and God is in all, is a more accurate reflection of reality and our experience, and by the way, you should now be feeling a tension, just like all the writers in the Bible did, of everything you were taught about where God is, and this new idea of God truly being in everything. There is a tension that exists there, which is hopefully going to help you wonder about these questions on your own time, and journal these. If this is true, that God is in everything, then how does this affect how we treat others, the people that you love, the people that you struggle to love, people who are different from you, people you sort of hate, and people you consider as enemies? Are you able to see them as God sees them? Are you able to be a conduit of calling out the God that is within them, that they might be in touch with that and you might have peace? How does this affect how we treat the earth if we're actually by the Bible's 
written code supposed to treat it as good stewards? How does that inform us? How do we treat it as wonderful, <laughs> as amazing? Because it is. Maybe that changes it. How would that change our world if we actually followed that line? And how does this affect how we treat our time here on this planet? To me, this is just one more part of why open and relational theology is compelling. It does not allow us to sit on the sidelines in the waiting room and just hope for the holy bus to take us to heaven someday because we have said the magic words that got the God in the sky happy enough to let us in. That's an old line that I don't think passes muster. I don't think that fits the whole teaching of the Bible. I don't think that fits uh, the full ancient Judaism thing where we do see the tension of God is just for us, but at the same time, we see God working in spite of the people and despite the Israeli people saying, no, I'm really with everybody. I'm really with everybody. I'm really in everybody. So treat everybody well. This calls us to something deeper, something greater. Your life matters. <laughs> Your life is amazing. We had a crosswalk. He's since moved out of, out of the area. Uh, and he's from the science world, and he kind of said this tongue-in-cheek, but every time, I, just about every time, we'd have a long conversation. You know what? The human body. I could have done a better job designing the human body. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh really? <laughs> I kind of doubt that. <laughs> because we don't even understand the complexities uh, that are happening in here. You are amazing. What are you going to do with your amazingness? What are you going to do with the fact that you are blessed by God? You are infused with the very presence of God, that it calls you, woos you forward to the best possible options you could choose. That not only are going to bless your own life in ways you may not fully understand at the moment, but you trust that God is connected to absolutely everyone and everything. God sees more than we can possibly see. So when God directs us in a particular way, it's trustworthy because we know that God can see the rest of the game board that we cannot. And we know that God's heart is love. And so when we choose that, what a gift, what a trip that we get to be a part of such a thing. And all the while, seeing the world become a more beautiful, loving place and the creation itself be full in its glory. What a gift that is to us, should we have it. This is what this framework allows. That's why I'm sold on it. Not for everybody. Maybe it's messing with you, but it's where I am. And it's given me legs. And it's given me energy to move forward. Let's pray together to uh, shut me up and uh, to allow you <laughs> to sort some of this out. So God, as we uh, close our time today, you can't shut me up about this stuff. Um, but I don't want to get in the way. And so God, I am I'm confident that you are at work. <laughs> you can't not be at work in this space and every space wanting to continually disclose who you are to us. And God, you are uh, patient and respectful of us. You don't come at us with a hammer and try to hammer it into our heads. But one idea at a time, one moment at a time, you invite us to think about something different, something new stretching us again and again. And whatever that stretching point is today, God, I pray that we'll at least welcome that and wonder and be curious about just who you are and how you work in our lives because it is incredible. And so give us a hunger, God, I pray. Pray that your spirit would give us a curiosity even as it comforts us and strengthens us on the journey. Uh, to all of this end, we pray the, the framework prayer uh, that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, a prayer that forces us to think in a different paradigm about who you are in our true north. And so to that end, we pray the prayer uh, that we've been taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, 
and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for coming today. I hope you had a good experience, and we will see you and Tom Ord next week. Thanks for coming. Thank you.